So our prayer today is that in some way you would feel the Almighty. We don't come here for just teaching. We don't come here for just some music. We come here because we want to have an encounter, an experience with the divine Almighty God. Amen? Amen. Is that what you want today? And listen, I don't know why or what brought you here. It could have been the person sitting next to you that you hope really likes you. It could be that you lost a bet. It could be that you wanted, whatever the reason is you're here. God has something for you. And I pray that the Spirit would open our hearts and our minds and we would see his great love for us. That no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've gone, you're never too far. Amen? Amen. All right, I'll start preaching before I even get into this. Come on. Thank you, Eric. That was awesome, man. Yeah. That was uh, very courageous. Maybe I should sing my sermon. Would that be easy? That would be something other than courageous. That would be something other than courageous. Uh, that would be something. So we, uh, we've been in this Luke project for two and a half years, and next week is the last week. go further <laughs> make it go longer we can't it's already been written you know but and, you know we're, seriously woo, we're gonna have a party next week we're gonna have some fun this is the second to last week Jesus you know we've been with him for three years we've been in for two and a half years the disciples for three years they've seen him teach and heal now he's been arrested tried they saw him publicly executed and then last week dad talked about how he rose from the dead and the resurrection and, and what that means for us. That if there is no resurrection, why are any of us here? What are we doing here? The power of what God did on that day and what it means for us. And so now we have Jesus here in Luke 24. After the resurrection, they went to the tomb. It's been empty. Where is he? He's in this new resurrection body that has the rules of humanity don't apply to it. And we'll see how that works. But this is a very interesting text and one that has been preached many times. And there's some questions in it I've always had. And today, um, I'm going to teach you a lot. We're going to have some teaching about what's going on. And at the end, I get a chance to preach. Is that okay? All right, so let's jump into this and let's read the entire text of today's sermon. I'll, we'll have it up here on the screens for you. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village. Oh, let me go back. One verse. Sorry, that was my fault, car. You guys have it there in your, anybody else have it open? No, okay. Um, when the women came back from the tomb, they told all the things to the 11 disciples. Remember, because Judas is gone. And to all the others, there were others there in the room with them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. He's gone, Jesus is risen, come on. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw it in strips of linen lying on themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what happened. It didn't say he believed. He wondered what happened. Now that same day, up on the screen, we'll go with this one. Now that same day, two of them, two of them, two who? Two of the people that were in the room there were going to a village called Emmaus. Later this day, two of them decided to go home. About seven miles from Jerusalem. How long does it take to walk seven miles at a stroll? How long? Three, four hours? Yeah, okay. So they got, they got a three to four hour trip. They're walking seven miles from Jerusalem to this city named Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. 
but they were kept from recognizing him. In his, in his Jesusness, he, he didn't want them to know it was him, so he kept them from recognizing who it was. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stopped and stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Isn't that a funny line? Are you kidding me? Are you the only person who has no idea what just happened? It's Passover for one, and then do you not know? And that's what Jesus says. What things? This is so Jesus. If you, as we've read the word, we've seen he always has these questions. What things? Do you think he doesn't know? He knows. What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to the sentence to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women, they amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, a vision of angels, and who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just, just as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Not slow to believe me, slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And, the begin and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized them and he disappeared from their sight. Really? Come on, I mean, what, what, the, Jesus after resurrection is modeling something for us that he doesn't model for us before resurrection. He has a resurrected body, okay? Something, something else is going here. He, he walks on this two-hour, three-hour trip. He gives this great teaching, uh, the amazing teaching. He breaks bread. All of a sudden, shunk, he's gone. What? Now, what would you think if you were these people? They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. I bet they made it in under four hours on the return trip. <laughs> I bet it was a little bit quicker on the way back. We, we got to get back and tell everybody else. There they found the 11, the 11 apostles, and those with them gathered together. And they said, it's true. And the apostles were saying, it's true, the Lord is risen. And he appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Then the two told what they had happened, what would happen on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. What a crazy account. What do we do with this? This is called the road to Emmaus. It's a, it's, it's a famous, that's the, that's the title of it. And there's, a, there's many sermons on this. You, you might have heard any number of them. But this, this whole text is just so full of questions for me. It gives me more questions than answers. And what do I love when it comes to the Bible? I love the questions. Because they lead us somewhere. 
We've been talking about how when you read the word, put yourself in it. Pray for God to give you discernment and revelation. Feel what they're feeling and then begin to ask the questions. Why this? Why that? Those will lead you places. And this is no different this week. In fact, this week, um, there's some pretty, pretty cool things that happen. Now, first and foremost, let's start with prophecy. This sermon that Jesus gave, he said, he said this, he opened, opened their eyes, he said, Mo, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he wouldn't have just started in Moses chronologically, he started there with that man, but he went all, because there's, there's prophecy before with Abraham, after, he went through all the Old Testament and talked about how all the prophets had spoke of one who is to come. Someone is coming, the Messiah. And he began to show throughout the entire Old Testament how they pointed to the suffering servant. He said, did you not know that, that the Messiah had to suffer? No, we didn't know that. And he began to show all the different prophecies. Now, there are over 300 prophecies, messianic prophecies. I don't have time to go through 300 messianic prophecies. You don't want me to go through 300 messianic prophecies. But the, what are the odds of somebody fulfilling 300, over 300 prophecies? How many have you fulfilled in your life? Two? <laughs> No, we, Jesus comes and fulfills all these prophecies. Let me just give you a few. Micah prophesied the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus couldn't control that, but that's where he was born. Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin. Genesis said he would be from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham. Hosea prophesied that he would spend a season in Egypt. Jeremiah, that he would, there would be a massacre of children that would happen in his birthplace, and we see that that happened. Historically, Isaiah prophesied that he would perform great signs and healings. Psalms prophesied he would be rejected by his own people. Isaiah prophesied he would be called a Nazarene and would speak in parables. Zechariah, that he would be betrayed for money and that would used to, be buy a f used to buy a field. Isaiah prophesied that he would be crucified with criminals. Psalm prophesied he would be given vinegar to drink, and we saw that on the cross. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even known to the world, David prophesied that he would have his hands and his feet pierced. Psalms stated that soldiers would gamble for his clothing. And that he would be forsaken for, by God. In fact, it says in Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Zechariah said that soldiers would pierce his side. Isaiah, that the Messiah would be buried with the wealthy. And we saw he was buried in a, in a rich man's tomb. Psalms prophesied he would be resurrected from the, the dead. And next week we get to his, they prophesy his ascension. Over 300 prophecies. And there's a, there's a professor of mathematics and his name was Peter Stoner. And he wanted to know the odds of Jesus fulfilling these. He had 600 graduate students at his disposal and he used them all to figure out what are the odds. And so he just took eight of these, the most specific ones, eight of them, and he found out the odds of someone fulfilling eight specific messianic prophecies was one out of a number that has 17 zeros. I think that's called 17th power. I don't know. But one out of a number with 17 zeros, to the 17th, they say. He, he put it this way. If you have a hat and you mark one out of 10 tickets and put it in the hat and a blindfold person grabs it, they have a one in 10 chance. One to the 17th would be this. Take a silver dollar. You might have heard this. Take a silver dollar and mark it. Mark that silver dollar and then put it with a number of set with 17 zeros. Put it with all the rest of them. And then he said, mathematically, they figured this out. You put them over Texas. Why Texas? I don't know. It's the biggest. They put it over Texas. And if you mathematically, if you stack all these silver dollars up, it'll be over two feet deep. Then you tell a blindfolded person, you can walk as far as you want and as long as you want in Texas. At some point, reach down and grab one and declare, this is it. And the odds, that is one to the 17th. He said, that's the odds of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies, let alone 300. And then there's all this talk of Moses in here. There's this talk of Moses. 
And if you begin to look at the life of Jesus and even Jesus' own words, there's a lot of discussion of Moses. The Moses, listen, Moses is, one, is larger than any of the prophets in the Old Testament. Moses was their first deliverer. He came into the world, stood up to the powers that enslaved them, took them from bondage, rescued them out of slavery, and brought them to the promised land. Moses, Moses also prophesied about the Messiah. And all the people were looking for this. And so you would see them say, and they, we see this in the scriptures, they say, the one the Moses told us would come, or the one that was written about, the one prophesied about, the one Moses prophesied about. And the Hebrews, at this point in Jesus' life, under the thumb of Roman rule, are looking for the second Moses. That was the term for a Messiah. This is the second Moses who would lead us to freedom, who would come do for us now what Moses did for us then. And so we have this Moses connection so let's look at these two prophets. The first, the firstly, Cleopas in here, when he's telling Jesus, he says that, he tells Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, he says that Jesus was mighty in word and deed. These are words that Hebrews used for Moses. This was like, a, they would say that about Moses, saying that about Jesus. He says, he was mighty in word and deed. We thought he was the one. He was like Moses. Stephen, later on, but when he's being martyred, uses that very term to speak about Moses. It's these two prophets, the Messiah and Moses. And so you have a whole nation with a working understanding of prophecies. Remember, they're raised on the Torah, on the Tanakh. They know these things. And they're looking for the one that Moses spoke of. And just as Jesus was starting his ministry, this is just an example. When Jesus is starting his ministry, he's, he's get, gathering his disciples, and Philip runs up to Nathanael and says this, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. We found the one Moses wrote about. See, this is a cultural theme for them. It says the one that the prophets wrote, wrote about. It's this Jesus guy, the son of Joseph. Now, now you guys, you know me. You know, you know, one thing that I love and I, I just geek out on is the connections of the word of God and how beautiful it is and how the Old Testament and the New Testament have so many beautiful connections. And so we have these two prophets looming large, the Moses and the second Moses, and, and all this language that connects them together. And I actually believe, I believe in a mirror, an Old Testament and New Testament, there are mirrored instances, and that the themes and the arcs go together. There's a mirror in each of them. And in fact, anytime you get to some obscure thing that happens in the New Testament, begin to trace it down, and oftentimes you'll find it has roots of something that happened in the Old Testament. And as you begin to go through the Old Testament and you find these, these strange customs and strange things, you can look into the New Testament oftentimes and, fi and find a mirror of that. And here we have these two men, Moses and Jesus. So here, let's look at the connect connections between the two of them. I don't have time to do a lot of them, but here's some of them. Moses was born when a conquering foreigner ruled the people of Israel, as was Jesus born when a conquering foreigner ruled the kingdom of Israel. Pharaoh, who was an evil ruler during Moses' time, declared that all, babies all new baby boys should be murdered because he did not want the deliverer to come to power. During Jesus' time, was it Herod declared that all baby boys should be murdered so the deliverer would not come to power. As an infant, Moses was hidden in Egypt, and as an infant, Jesus was hidden in Egypt. Moses was brought up by a man that was not his father. Jesus was also brought up by a man who was not his father. Then we have, then we have these, these things that happen where Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, giving them what God gives him, teaching them about who they are and who he is. Revelation to them, and they get hungry. And so by God's power, they are fed in that moment. Transition forward to Jesus. He's out in the wilderness teaching the people what it means to be to, who they are and who God is. He's teaching them. And by God's power, what does he do? He feeds the 5,000. And guess what they say when he does that? See, remember, these people, they understand 
that, that there's, some, there's connections going on here. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 6, it says this. Someone says, surely this is the prophet who was to come to the world. He, he just did what Moses did. He just did what Moses did. And Moses said one would come that would be like him. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. There he's transfigured. His face begins to glow from the glory of God. He is given words of identity. These are the words of God. Listen. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the Mount. He is transfigured, and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, the word. Listen. Moses gave God's law on Mount Sinai. He stands on Mount Sinai holding the Ten Commandments, and he gives them new guidelines and identity. One like, like thou shalt not commit adultery. He's giving them a new teaching from the mount. Jesus stands on the Mount of Beatitudes and did the same thing. He gave a new law. He referred to the Ten Commandments. He said, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, do not look on a woman lustfully. Both standing on the mountain, both giving new revelation. The people in the Hebrew culture, this would not be lost on them. It was not lost on them. This is why there was a fervor from so many. We thought he was the one. Both were mediators between God and people. Moses, mediator of the old covenant, not just through the sacrificial system, but actually personally at times fasting and praying and asking God to spare the people. And Jesus, of course, is our mediator. Both led the people out of captivity. Jesus, is first, and Charlie's read this before and preached on it, Jesus' first public sermon was that he said, I'll set the captives free. Moses, in Exodus 32, 32, Moses offers his life in exchange for sinners and Jesus literally gives his life in exchange for those far from God. And back in John 1, in the Jordan River, John the Baptist was baptizing and they say, they ask him, they say, are you the prophet? Not are you a prophet, are you the prophet? Are you the one? It shows they're consistently looking for this fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says this, himself. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up one from among you. Among you. You must listen to him. So when they ask John the Baptist, are you the prophet? He says, among you stands one who I am not fit to tie his sandals. Do you see the interplay here? And the very next day, John the Baptist says, there he is. There is this second Moses. There is this connection to all that they knew and all that was right there, to all that is happening. And culturally, they would have had eyes and an understanding to see many of these connections. Of course, the Pharisees did not like this. The Pharisees were the uh, religious elite at the time. They did not like the connection between Jesus and Moses. And Jesus says to them in John 5, listen, you believe Moses. If you believed him, you believe me because Moses was talking about me. Oh, that would have been, that's dynamite. That's just pouring gasoline. You, you say you believe Moses? Guess what? He's talking about me. All those prophecies? Me. I'm the guy. Going back to this Cleopas. They are there on the path. Jesus shows up and he gives them this sermon where he does in two hours, he gives them the entire rundown about how each of those connects to Jesus. What a mind-blowing sermon. What a mind-blowing teaching to be on that road. I would give anything to have that podcast. <laughs> he goes through the entirety of the Old Testament prophets, and apparently what he's showing us is that the entire Bible points to Jesus. Apparently what he's showing is that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the Bible. Now, this is, a, this is important. This is a deep, deep paradigm shift for you. And this is one reason the Luke Project has been so, so needed and so helpful. Because as you begin to know Jesus better, you read the Bible better. If the Bible all points to Jesus, and as you begin to know him, know who he is, know his character, see what he does and why he does, you begin to read the whole Bible differently. Jesus himself reveals the way he would read the Bible when he opens the scriptures to Cleopas. He says, let me show you. Let me show you how to read the Bible in light of me. Now, Cleopas and his companion, will they ever read the Bible the same again? Can they? So this, Tim Keller says, this is like um, the sixth sense. How many of you have seen the sixth sense? I always ask rhetorical questions. The sixth sense is one of those movies, at the very end, when you watch it for the first time, you get what? Goosebumps. If you haven't seen the sixth sense, spoiler. In the sixth sense, you can only watch it one time with fresh eyes. You can only watch the movie once, really. The movie have an, has an ending that gives you these chill bumps. So, so here, here's, here's the spoiler alert. Um, Bruce, Willips, Bruce Willis helps this boy, um, who the boy thinks he can see dead people. But guess what? At the end, we find out Bruce Willis is dead. Yeah, I know. Listen, hey, it, yeah, you've only had a decade to watch. Listen, if that didn't spoil it for you, by the way, at the end of Titanic, the ship goes down. <laughs> in, in Mission Impossible, it wasn't impossible. Yeah, I know. And, and the hangover, it was a roofie and Doug's on the roof. Yeah, I'm just going to ruin them all for you, okay? Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Now, once you watch that and you're like, oh my gosh. And then when you watch it the second time, you watch it with that knowledge. Oh, and you pick up all these little clues all throughout. I missed it the first time. I missed it. I couldn't believe I didn't notice all these things. Now I see the sixth sense differently. This is how the Bible was for Cleopas. I've read the whole Bible, but now Bruce Willis may be dead, but Jesus is alive. And I read the Bible with that in mind. I can't go back and read about the sacrificial system without thinking of Jesus. I can't read Isaiah talk about the suffering servant without thinking of Jesus. I can't think of David writing the Psalms about all that would happen on the cross and not think of Jesus. You can never read the Bible again once you get to know Jesus and see all that he's done. So as you read the Bible, read it through the lens and the paradigm of our Savior, our Messiah, who fulfilled it. The Bible is beautiful, and the fact that he came and fulfilled over 300 prophecies is just mind-blowing to me. And here on the road to Emmaus, he took the time to track down two random people and reveal this to them, which leads to some questions. (laughs) He hides his identity. He reveals the truth. And he he breaks bread, and what does he do? Disappears. This is just wild. Now, questions can lead us places, right? So when we read this, we, we just kind of read over and go, okay, well, that's what happened. But what, what do you want to know about this, this, this text? You know what I want to know? I've always wondered, who are these two people? Like, why did Jesus appear to them outside of Jerusalem? Why are they so important to Jesus that he's doing all these things, he's raising from the dead, and he goes, I'm just gonna make a pit stop on our road for three hours and then have dinner with some, just some randos and, and, and we're gonna, I'm gonna reveal things to them and then beam out. Why 
you've always wondered this too, right? Why these two? Who are they? Well, one's Cleopas. Well, that would transliterate to Cletus, I think, in our, our text. I don't know. We have Cleopas, so we're following this. Let's, let's, let's go. Do you mind if we just go into this a little bit? Because this is, there's some fun stuff here, and I believe we find something very beautiful. We have Cleopas. We don't know his companion, but let's focus on him. What is so important about Cleopas that Jesus seeks this man out? Who is he? Why? What's he important? There's something about him that is important. He's close to Jesus. He says, Cleopas says, I was there when the women left. I was there when the women came back. I was there when Peter left. I was in the room. That room was a small group of people afraid. They're not gonna let just anybody in. Whoever, whoever Cleopas is, he's one of Jesus' disciples. He's not one of the 12, now the 11. He's not one of the 11, but he's in the room with Peter and John and the Marys. He didn't go to the tomb, but he saw them leave. Who is Cleopas? Why would Jesus take time out for this guy? Who is he? I mean, it's too bad. Isn't it just too bad that he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? Isn't it just too bad that the name Cleopas only appears in this one place in this one time? Wouldn't it be cool if we knew more about him? I think it would be pretty cool. Well, so the name Cleopas is pretty rare. And there's some tradition in the the language that goes with it that there is somebody mentioned in John 19 by the name of Clopas. And Cleopas and Clopas would be Hellenized forms of the Homeric name. And it's not a stretch by any imagination to believe that this Clopas and Cleopas are the same person. Not only because of language, but in first century Hebrews had many names. Oftentimes, let's just take Peter. Peter's known as Simon. He's referred to as Simon Peter. He's referred to as Peter and he's referred to as Cephas. Cleopas and Clopas are very similar and it can be rendered as Clopas. So we have in John 19, what does that say about this person? Who is this person? Here's what it says in John 19 verse 25. Near the cross, Jesus is on the cross. Near the cross is Jesus' mother Mary and his mother's sister. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have three Marys there. Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, rendered Cleopas. So we have these three Marys. In Matthew 28, verses one, she gets another name added to the list. Now after the Sabbath, the first day of the week began to draw, dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. The other Mary is this Mary mentioned that went to the tomb with Mary Magdalene with the spices. She's called the other Mary. We have Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, you get to be other Mary. You ever been that person in the group? You're the other Trevor, you know? Yeah, we all have one of those. It doesn't stop there. Today we read in Luke 24, I don't know if you caught it, the other Mary is referred to by another name. Mary, the mother of James the Lesser, which is the way of saying James the Younger or Little. James is Junior's mom. Um, This Mary, the mother of James, is mentioned in all four Gospels, Mark 15, uh, Mark 16, Matthew 17, and today here, and then in Luke and, and in John, Mary, the other Mary, is also the wife of Cleopas and the mother of James the Less. Okay, so, we're, so just go with me. I told you I'm going to teach and then I'll preach at the end, okay? So we're going somewhere. We get this clearer picture of who Mary is, Cleopas' wife, but it still doesn't help us because who is Cleopas? Who is he? Well, again, why would Jesus take any time to return to this person? He had so much work to do in Jerusalem. Not only that, it just it baffles me because Cleopas and his companion, their faith is broken, like, we, we get this sense from them. They're on the road, and they're like, we thought he was the one. We're headed home. The party's over. Remember that um, drive home from the uh, Bronco game? When they lost the Super Bowl, for those of you that can? Like, it's over. Party's over. Let's go home. So, so they're going home. They're done. 
Their faith is broken. Why does Jesus pursue these people? Let's go down the rabbit hole just a little bit further. There's a historian named Hegesippus, which I know you've all read at some point. Hegesippus is an ancient historian that chronicled the early church history. The only problem of, out, out of his five works, we have none of them, all destroyed. Eight fragments of Hegesippus, sounds like a terrible disease. <laughs> Eight passages from this early Greek historian Remain, and Eusebius quotes them. Eusebius is called the father of church history, and he quotes Hegesippus in saying, catch this, Cleopas is the brother of Joseph. <coughs> Joseph, the one who the angel appeared to, who marries the pregnant virgin Mary, and who raises Jesus from infancy. Cleopas, is that Joseph's brother? Could it be? Could it be that Cleopas is Jesus' uncle? Uncle Cleo? And he and his wife, Mary, who have constantly seen the mother Mary and Mary Magdalene, she would be Jesus' aunt. Why is this important? It's not. Why is this getting me excited? I don't know. Because it, listen, because this, the Bible is a book about real events. It's a real account of real people who had real emotions and real things are happening. So when Jesus goes on a random road for random people that we've never heard about, I want to know why. What does that tell us about our God and his nature? What does it tell us about the story? How does it round out? What is God doing? There's a beauty to this. I think we found a beautiful answer to this, this, this question. So from scripture, we know that Mary, the mother of James Jr., we know she went to the tomb with Mary Magdalene, armed with spices. Now, about these women. They go to the tomb. What are they going to the tomb for? What are they, what are they carrying? Spices for what? A dead body. <laughs> There's no faith. It's all broken. They go to the tomb with spices for a dead body. And we know from Luke 24, 23, that Cleopas is with the 11 in the room when the Marys return. Because he says, the women came back to see us. He doesn't say, they came back and saw the disciples and told me eventually. No, no, I was there. They came and told me. Mary goes to the tomb, sees the empty tomb, and the angel comes back to where the 11 are, and she tells them where Cleopas is, and she tells them. Cleopas says that they ran to the tomb, and they found no body, no Jesus now, this to them wasn't hope. <gasps> Maybe. Apparently, we, we know from the text that they go home brokenhearted. You know what? I bet they, I, I'm just I'm guessing. I bet they thought the body was stolen. I mean, if, if they thought he was resurrected, why not wait a couple more days? They start on the road home immediately. No body. No Jesus. And most importantly, no resurrection. Heartbroken, Cleopas packs up and heads back to his home that we find is in Emmaus. But ask yourself, who is traveling with Cleopas? Who would travel with such a person? Cleopas and the unnamed person invite Jesus to stay in their home. Who would share Cleopas' home? Well, could it be that the unnamed person that's traveling with Cleopas is his wife Mary? Other, it could be Simeon, their, their son, who end up in, in, in history begin, ends up being the, um, the leader of the Church of Jerusalem after James. Who could it be? We know Mary was there. And we truly don't know, but we, can, we always assume it's a man when we read these stories which says something about us, but also we have all these classic paintings of the two men on the road and Jesus appears to them. What if it wasn't a man? What if this is two of Jesus' closest friends and disciples? What if this is Cleopas and his wife, Mary. Heartbroken. 
heartbroken. And Jesus hides his identity as he talks to them. Cleopas states, Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, Moses indicator, before God and all the people. But we had hoped that he was gonna be the one. We hoped he was the one that was gonna redeem us. And what's more, it's the third day. What, is it, what are they saying there? It's the third day? What does that mean? Once more, it's the third day. He told us he would rise again in three days, and it's been three days, and we don't see Jesus. Now, there is some confusion on why three days. People are like, well, he was, he, Friday night, he was, he was executed, and he rose on Sunday morning. That's like 36 hours. Like, I've had people ask me, like, that's not three days. Let me just clear that for us. Jewish, uh, the Jewish day begins at sunset. So he died on Friday. Friday night would be Saturday. That's two days. And then on Saturday night, that would be Sunday. He was dead. Three, he rose on the third morning. So three days. They're like, it's been three days. And no Jesus. So they begin to leave. They begin to walk. Then Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And when we have Jesus saying this to two random men, I almost get the sense that it's a, re- a big rebuke. How foolish you guys are. Didn't you not read the Bible? But if we stop here and reframe the story, Jesus pursued these two people. He had plenty of things he could have been doing, but he pursued these two people. He pursued these heartbroken disciples. They are downcast and they are hurting. And Jesus looks into the eyes of his aunt and uncle, whom he's known his whole life, who've known him since infancy, and based on the, how they lived back then, probably help raise him. In fact, when Jesus is 12 years old in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph leave Jesus back at the temple and don't know it. It says they assume he's in the company of their relatives. They assumed he was with Uncle Cleo. He wasn't. So Jesus looks in the eyes of these two people on this Emmaus. And it's much more endearing. You can see him. He knows these people. Mary, Cleopas. His heart would just say, don't you know what was said about me? Remember what the prophets said? Remember the angels that spoke to Mary and and Joseph? Don't be foolish. You've known these things for a long time. Why are you walking home already? There's so much to be done. They get to his house and they invite him to go in and he sits there at the table and he does what he has done many times with the disciples. He breaks bread with them. Now imagine sitting there. You're reclining with this this stranger who opened up the word to you that has wowed you and he begins to break bread. He lifts the bread to break it, and as he lifts the bread, his sleeves fall down, and what do you immediately see as he begins to tear? What would they be looking at? The scars and the nails. And in that moment, they look from nail scars to smiling face. And he's gone. I wonder how long that silence was. No way! You know, they just, the whole table erupts. Can you believe it? It was him. It was him. And it says, did you not, did you not know? Like, our hearts were burning within us. There's only one other teacher who's made our hearts burn within us like that. We should have known it was him. I can't imagine how that table erupted. They just said, he's alive, he's alive. And they make this seven-mile trip in record time. On the, the, the way to Emmaus, they were downcast and broken. On the way back, they are so full of joy and faith. They get back to the room where Mary and Eleven are, and they begin to celebrate and all talk about Jesus being resurrected. And then Jesus steps into the room, recognized by all of them. And that's where we pick up next week. So for me, that was some fun teaching. Some fun teaching that rounds out the narrative.
The word of God is beautiful. There's so much to it. So much, there's, so, we'll get to heaven someday and God will go, Daniel, that was nice. But look at what actually is in here. And it'll be like, it'll be so chock full of these truths. But for now, it's, it's been some fun teaching. The importance of prophecy and how it all points to Jesus. There are videos upon video and book upon book about prophecy that points to Jesus. If that's your thing, go read those. We looked at the way Jesus came and fulfilled it. Jesus the second Moses. We have Cleopas and who he could have been and why Jesus pursued him. But I want to finish the morning with some preaching. Put the teaching aside and do some preaching because there's some things about Emmaus that impact all of us. You see, because we have all walked the road to Emmaus. Each of us have walked it. We've all walked this road of disappointment in God. We've all walked this road as we've been dis disappointed in life. As circumstances have broken, we ask the question, where are you in this, God? And we've all walked away with crushing disappointment. I thought you would be there for me. Where were you? We've all been on the road to Emmaus, downcast. I thought he was the one that was gonna help me with this. And he wasn't. See, our, our road to Emmaus, when circumstances have crushed us, when losses have hurt us, it weakens our faith. Our disappointment with God leads us down this road. These two downcast disciples walking the road of disappointment, they were looking for a Messiah who would save them from their suffering. And Jesus came to be a Messiah that would save him through their suffering. And how often are we, 2,000 years later, still looking for a Savior who saves us from our suffering? And when he doesn't, the disappointment leads us down this road. But Jesus doesn't leave them there, does he? Does he leave them on the road? No. See, we see these two brokenhearted disciples walking away from Jesus, away from Jerusalem. And what does he do? What does Jesus do? He pursues them. In the text, it says that he walked along with them. In their disappointment, Jesus walks with them. And orchard, in your disappointment, where is Jesus? He's walking with you. The Bible also says that he hid his identity. In your disappointment, do you always see where God is? He's right there next to me. There's that footprints poem that's famous. Where were you in that? <laughs> you know? How often when we are walking the road of, of crushed and brokenness, we're saying, where is Jesus? And he is walking with us, and we do not see him. In retrospect, we look back and we see, you were there with me. Every step of the way, but in that pain of pains, it is hard to always see him. Jesus pursued those who were disappointed, and he, he pursues you. When I moved back from Georgia um, 10 years ago, and, and there's sermons that give details of this that I, I'm just not going to today, I don't have time, there, there was, my life was broken, at that time, I was, I was at the top of my industry, my specific industry, and it all unraveled. And as my life fell apart and my heart was crushed, I tasted betrayal from people around me. I, my trust in others was broken. I resigned and got a job that I could just clock in and clock out to, and I was just going to eke out whatever happiness I could find along the way. I was leaving to go to, back to something else and just make a life for myself. I was done dreaming big, done with the dream, done with the faith. Now, I still believe Jesus was my savior. I still believe in Jesus. But my faith did not engage. 
My disappointment was so great, my hurt was so great, I didn't engage my faith at all. I began to have just a shallow faith, no passion, and my, all my faith could have me do is say, I believe in Jesus. I believe, he, I believe he's my savior. But beyond that, I was kind of done. And I walked this road of disappointment with no passion and hardly any faith. And, and, and all those things that happened to me, yes, I was betrayed by humans, but you know what I began to realize as I got some distance and I began to see what hurt me the deepest and hurt me the most was I felt betrayed by God. I felt like he had let me down. Where were you in this? How could you let this happen to me? I loved you. Where were you? And as my life fell to pieces, the disappointment I had that was the most salient, that stuck with me the longest, was my disappointment in the Almighty. And I had to reckon with that one. I was on the road to Emmaus. I thought you were the one that was gonna get me through this stuff. I thought you were the one that was gonna protect me from these kind of things, Jesus. I thought you would keep this from me. You know, how often in our lives do our circumstances and losses and diagnoses and funerals and divorces weigh upon us and break us down and we find ourselves not just broken by the circumstance but broken by the question, where were you? Where are you? And we start down that road of Emmaus with fractured faith, leaking passion. It wasn't supposed to go this way. They weren't supposed to die. It wasn't supposed to break. It wasn't supposed to split up. The road to Emmaus is a road of disappointment. And we find ourselves on this road with impoverished passion and, and, all, and broken faith. And, and what do we learn today? We learn that in our lowest moments of faith, in our lowest moments with no passion, even when we are walking away from Jesus, what do we learn? That he pursues us. He could have let them walk away. But it's just, it's just a little picture of what, how every single day he pursues you. In some way, he is with you, pursuing you. And yes, you might have been hurt by the church. And you might have been hurt by people. And you might have been betrayed by, the, by the, all those things. And your faith could be weak. And your passion could be gone. And Jesus says, I love you. My son, my daughter, I love you. I'm right here. I'm pursuing you even now. And though you have been hurt by all those, I love you. finds us on the road to Emmaus and calls us to a new walk. He would say to us, I know you've been hurt. I know you've felt loss. I know you hoped I would solve all your pain and fix your circumstance. But you need to know I'm with you and I'm pursuing you. I'm calling you to me. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are important to me. He wants us to choose to re-engage with him. You know, Cleopas and his companion could have just stayed in Emmaus. That's great, Jesus. That's great you're alive and all. But uh, that was a pretty difficult situation, and I just don't want to get back involved in that. I've been there. I'm like, that's, that's cool you died and rose again, but that was a lot of pain over there and what I went through. It's a lot easier over here just to not extend my faith, not get my hopes up too high. 
You know what I'm saying? Now, let's just kind of live it out. Let's not get our hopes too high on this. Jesus is asking us to engage our hope. Engage your hope once again. Engage your faith once again. Leave Emmaus and come back to the epicenter where he is calling you and working you and building a movement of passion and faith to go change the world, to change Carbondale, to change Glenwood, Basalt, maybe even Aspen. I don't know. (laughs) He's an all-powerful God. (laughs) He wants us to engage with him. Listen, in worship, why do we worship? Do we do we worship just to sing a song? We worship to engage in him with passion and faith to sing words of, of celebration to him. Why do we read his word? We don't read his word. Remember, don't get just a little, I just want a nugget for today. I'm just a moral little thing to help me. Read this to know him. Know the almighty. He wants to be known by you. He's drawing you, pursuing you. Listen, the, the, the God found in this book and who's in, in your life revealing himself to you is not the one who hurt you from all the other stuff that happened with the churches and the people or the betrayals or the falling aparts. He calls you to a life, a full life, where you can be restored to love God and love people in a way you never believed you could. He wants you to come in prayer to hear him and come to church to celebrate him. And then this last thing, it says their hearts were on fire. Orchard, when was the last time your heart was on fire? When was the last time you worshiped or heard a word or you were in a moment and you felt that movement inside of the soul that only God can touch where you felt something rising within you? When was the last time your heart burned for the things of God? See, we get used, we get used to a dry, passionless faith. But that is not what we're called to. God set our hearts on fire. He set their hearts on fire and they set the world aflame with his love. These people changed the world because they were changed by him. Do you not think he can change this area through us? Yes, the answer is yes, he can. I am praying the Spirit of God meet you in this moment. And as we go to um, communion, as you get the bread and the the juice, which is the symbol of God's body and his blood. And remember, this is an open table. No class is needed. You You can come take of this, even if you're a guest today. And as you take it and go sit down, when you sit with that bread and that juice that symbolizes broken body and his shed blood, I want you to affirm some things. Because maybe you're on the road to Emmaus and you need to affirm some things. First of all, Jesus, I affirm that I believe you died. I believe you rose from the dead and I believe you're my my savior. And then have an honest conversation with him. But I am so disappointed. I'm so broken. Tell him. Be honest with him. Tell him. Tell him these things. Say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Show me where you are. I take your body, which is the the symbol of your body that was broken for me on a cross so that I can have access to you and the Father. I affirm that I believe in you. I take and drink the juice, the symbol of your blood that was shed for me to have healing, not just of body, but Lord, heal my heart, the places in my past that have been robbed from me, that stuck me on that road in the first place. Jesus, please redeem me. He does great things, doesn't he? He's not done yet. He wants to set our hearts on fire. Jesus, we thank you that you pursue us in the depths of our disappointment. We thank you that we don't have to be monsters of faith with with hearts that are unshakable for you to love us. Father, we are all, we have all been on that road and many of us are on that road right here in, in this place. I pray by your spirit's power you pursue us and light our hearts, even with a flicker once again that says, yes, this is the way.
You're calling us back. Thank you, Jesus.